Hello, and welcome to Macro Minutes. During each episode, we'll be joined by RBC Capital Markets experts to provide high conviction insights on the latest developments in financial markets and the global economy. Please listen to the end of this recording for important disclosures. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the March 21st edition of Macro Minutes called Humpty Dumpty. Um, I'm Jason Dahr, your host for today's call, which we're recording at uh, 9 a.m. Eastern Time on March the 21st. So it might be an overly simplistic argument, but in hindsight, it should not be surprising that aggressive Fed rate hikes have broke something in financial markets, and policy actions to ring-fence the problems have been fast and furious, but uh, the question is, can all the king's horses and all the king's men put dislocated markets uh, back together again? So on today's call, we're going to discuss the uh, current situation for uh, European and U.S. credit, uh, macro and monetary policy. So we're joined today by uh, Nicola Dransfield in our uh, European financial uh, credit uh, strategy team, Adam Jones in U.S. credit trading, Tom Porcelli in U.S. economics, uh, Blake Gwynn in U.S. rates, uh, Peter Shafrick in uh, U.K. and Europe macro and rates, and Adam Cole on currencies. So to kick off uh, today's discussion, I'm going to talk about some high-level points on macro and policy. Uh, the first one is is that uh, policy actions are working to some extent, and I think the good news is that uh, financial stability concerns uh, have been limited to certain areas such as bank credit, government bonds, and bank equity, and the contagion to other asset classes has been uh, pretty limited. The bad news, in my opinion, is that the bounce that we've seen in uh, dislocated uh, assets uh, has been pretty small so far relative to the aggressive policy actions taken so far. And I think the longer the markets, um, you know, fail to mostly recover the moves uh, since March 8th, uh, the more worried we should be. Um, I would say one item to watch um, is the news uh, today that the U.S. is exploring ways to guarantee all deposits in the regional banking system. And this would surely be a game changer given, um, you know, one of the big underlying risks for financial stability right now is uh, deposit outflows. Um, on my second point, um, you know, the economic damage, you know, is uh, real. So smaller banks in the U.S., they have been an important contributor to bank lending, outpacing that of larger banks uh, the last few years, and especially in areas like uh, commercial real estate, which was already uh, in a bit of a vulnerable position. So uh, with lending standards already tightening significantly, uh, this is a new uh, downside risk uh, to economic activity. But I would say, though, with everything going on in the U.S., uh, the situation in Canada has been uh, calmer by comparison. Um, Bank stocks, they have been dragged down uh, by the U.S., but they have significantly uh, outperformed uh, their U.S. peers. And at the end of the day, uh, Canadian uh, banking uh, does not face the same problems as the U.S. uh, banking sector. Now, even with the new um, downside economic risks uh, probably emanating from the U.S., the chance of near-term rate cuts in Canada, um, so the market's pricing these by July, uh, seem quite low. At the end of the day, macro simply doesn't support it. And uh, for rate cuts to be justified, I think, would require the worst-case scenario uh, for financial stability unfolding. Um, so there's probably value there in fading uh, tail-risk scenario rate cut pricing. And the last point I want to make is that a lot of the move in fixed income uh, has probably been due to positioning. Uh, We saw record shorts in U.S. futures, and those collided with one of the biggest rallies that we've seen in the bond market on record. Now, in Canada, uh, 10-year yields are about 25 basis points uh, too low based on market pricing for the terminal rate and uh, rate cuts. 
Um, so while we've been bullish on duration in 2023, uh, there is little value in being uh, long at these levels, and risk-reward probably fa- favors uh, paying for a bounce. Um, so now on to the fun stuff. Uh, next up is um, uh, Nicola, um, who will um, tell us what's happening in the European uh, financials credit space. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Um, I just wanted to talk through real quickly about what happened with Credit Suisse and, and kind of where we've ended up. Um, the starting point here, I think what we need to remember is that Credit Suisse was a highly problematic bank to begin with. Um, the group was in the middle of a restructuring. There were already a lot of questions going around whether they'd be able to execute this successfully while remaining a viable operator. Um, on top of that, there were issues at the bank around risk controls. Um, Um, as well as outstanding litigation cases. Now, if we take a step back and we think about um, the year so far, um, before SVB or any sort of issues at U.S. regional banks, investors were very positive on European banks, um, and a number of them were overweight in the space. Um, And, you know, this really made sense to us because we're finally getting rate hikes in Europe, and broadly speaking, bank balance sheets are in a good place. Unfortunately, when SVB happened, um, the sentiment towards banks changed pretty quickly uh, and people started looking for the next cracks in the system and that's when we saw Credit Suisse emerge as the weakest link and concerns regarding their viability as a bank ramped up very aggressively. So over sort of the last week or so, things deteriorated rapidly. Um, the Swiss regulators eventually stepped in, and over the weekend they brokered a deal whereby UBS, a much more solid uh, Swiss bank, would buy Credit Suisse. Um, now, this deal with UBS, it really should have been uh, a positive because it removed a lot of the contagion risks and fears um, that Credit Suisse introduced. Remember, this is a globally sort of systemic bank here. Um, however, um, in order to facilitate the deal, the regulators decided that Credit Suisse AT1s, so they most junior subordinated bonds would effectively be zeroed. Now, this caused a significantly negative reaction in the 81 market at large, um, and I'd say really across financial credit more broadly. Why? Um, two things. So firstly, um, this is the largest 81 write-off that we've ever seen, plus it happened in, in such a, a large systemic bank, um, really a key bank globally. Secondly, and more importantly, 81 holders got zero. So debt holders got zero, but Credit Suisse shareholders were still getting something. They were going to get UBS shares. Um, And this is just simply not how the creditor hierarchy should work. What we then saw um, as yesterday progressed was other bank regulators coming out with statements, specifically the Bank of England and the EBA, um, and they were saying that this is really a uniquely Swiss outcome, um, and if if they were in any similar situation, they would look to respect the hierarchy such that 81s would only absorb losses once equity has been wiped off. Effectively, they were trying to stop the read across to all 81s at large. Ultimately, this did help the 81 market somewhat as the day progressed. Um, We did see some of the initial declines reversing somewhat. and then just to give you a sense of the spread move that we saw in, in credit fees itself, if I just take a, a simple euro senior bond uh, in the longer end, there we saw spreads move from about 400 basis points to a peak of just over 800 basis points. Um, as of today, we've, we've retraced back um, most of that, and we're actually now tighter on the month as credit fees spreads converge towards the much more solid UBSs. 
So I think um, at the end of the day, we've avoided the ca catastrophe of Credit Suisse going under. Um, the tone in bank credit is, is somewhat better today, but I think you know uh, ultimately the cost of issuing these 81 instruments after the situation is definitely higher, and I'd say risk premium in FINS more broadly um, certainly has increased for the time being. So I'll finish up there and hand it back to Jason. Okay, thank you very much. Um, now over to Adam Jones on our U.S. Uh, credit trading desk to uh, discuss the situation from his lens. Yeah, I mean, this morning is probably the first time we've had a chance to breathe for about a week. Um, obviously, the, the trouble in the banks has, has ripped through credit markets, um, catching everybody a bit flat-footed. Um, you know, we saw substantial widening, as you would expect, in in bonds and in and in hedge instruments. You know, IG hit wides of CDX IG hit wides of 94 basis points, um, but it's rallied into 80 this morning. So the last day or two has seen a significant improvement in sentiment. Um, but obviously, front and center has been the regional banks. Um, nobody, nobody's been wanting to touch that paper. We've seen material selling uh, across accounts, as, as you would expect. Um, I think the biggest surprise, though, has been how that has fed through very quickly to, um, to broader credit and, and indeed curves. Uh, we've seen significant pressure at the front end. Um, I mean, my favorite proxy for front-end is SPSB, which is a front-end ETF, and the spread on that has moved from 67 basis points a couple of weeks ago to 150 basis points. Uh, if you compare that with LQD, which is more like a 10-year benchmark, that's, that moved from 155 to 190. So, you know, there's a difference between a 35-bit move and, you know, almost 100 basis points. Uh, you, you can also see the extent of the selling and sentiment change in the in, flo in the floating rate market. Um, FLRN is probably the best ETF to look for that, and that just has completely fallen out of bed, which is a, a mixture of you know lack of liquidity, ETFs leading the charge, and just a general aversion to to notional at risk. Um, you know, so where do we go from here? This morning has definitely been an improvement in sentiment. Uh, I think for us to have any meaningful rally, we're going to have to see curves uh, normalize, though. You know, this, this damage at the front end has to, has to be reversed. You know, the, these front end funding spreads pretty much can't remain at these levels. Um, and I think that, you know, as far as but where I expect to see changes, that, that's going to be one of the first things that has to start to come back down. Um, but obviously the fear is still there. You know, the, the regional banks have scared everybody. Um, people are starting to look at balance sheets, which is always a bit scary when it comes to financials. And we're getting lots of questions about hold to maturity portfolios, about commercial real estate exposure. And the truth is, you know, when you start to peel back the onion on these banks, you know, there are... There are issues there, and typically a bank would be allowed to earn its way out, but right now it feels like people aren't giving it the time that's needed, and so there's certainly a tension on whether the FDIC do indeed extend insurance on deposits beyond 250k uh, to just make larger depositors feel comfortable at these regional banks. Um, you know, and then in the background, the longer play is, you know, credit conditions are materially tighter because of this. We would expect a decrease in lending, and then ultimately, you know, does that guarantee a recession? But th that's a somewhat slower-moving uh, animal, and given the severe move we had in spreads, it's not surprising to see a bit of a bounce. Okay, great. Uh, thanks a lot, Adam. Um, you know, so Fed pricing, it's, um, you know, bounced around over the past uh, week or so, between 50 and 80 percent. Now it's uh, closer to... Uh, 80% going into tomorrow's uh, Fed meeting, 
and uh, Bloomberg consensus, um, you know, seems to be in the camp of a 25 basis point hike. So, um, you know, now over to Tom for his take on uh, the Fed this week. Look, I think that the Fed is going to hike rates tomorrow. I mean, as we wrote last week in the Daily Dex, I mean, it was going to be a game time decision basically based on um, how things evolved over the last week. Um, And right now things have evolved in such a way um, that the Fed will likely feel comfortable hiking tomorrow. So they got 25 we don't think that they're supposed to go 25, but we've also been saying that now for uh, the last uh, a few meetings. I mean, the Fed is still fighting yesterday's war on inflation, um, and it just goes to, uh, again, it just drives home um, how dreadful they think the, in- the inflation outcome is that they are willing to hike rates in the, in the midst of bank stress. I mean, you know, that, that just strikes me as, um, as, as off base um, and slightly tone deaf, but it's, it's, their, uh, it's, it's their ball game. So, um, you know, all in the context of uh, what the Fed should do versus what they will do. Um, look, I think the, 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 bigger, the biggest thing that we're worried about, and again, we, we, we mentioned this uh, last week in, in, in a daily or two, you know, look, lending standards were already on the rise. Um, we've been fond of saying for, for months at this point that if you look at just the, the sort of, you know, like a four-quarter delta point-to-point change um, in lending standards, this is the biggest increase um, since, since, the, since the GFC, um, if you exclude the pandemic. Um, and so what do you think is going to happen to lending standards going forward? Um, uh, you know, this is, this is going to be a challenge in that, and we, we sent this note out um, uh, or got a chart um, uh, uh, yesterday, um, just to a few folks, just to take a peek at, just 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 so they can understand this idea that we've been talking about, which is to say, if you look at um, the thing that has been the key driver from a spending perspective, um, it's obviously first and foremost it, it has been the drawdown in saving. Um, the drawdown in saving is starting to sort of um, normalize here a bit now, um, stabilize uh, is probably a better way of phrasing it. Um, and so what's picked up the baton? Um, well, credit. <laughs> and uh, we can easily see a scenario where, uh, where in, in the, on the back of all of this happening, that, that really starts to fade. So, you know, if there's an irony, and I'm not even sure if irony is the right word, but, but if, you consider the, um, if you consider Q1 growth, Q1 growth is going to look pretty good. Um, I, I mean, you're probably looking at around 3% growth. I think Q2 growth will look a little softer, but it'll still be pretty decent. I think the second half of the year, though, is going to look very different. Um, and, uh, and I think that's, that therein lies the, the challenge for, for this Fed. So market pricing of cuts, I think, again, anyone who reads our research well knows that we've been saying that for quite some time, that they would cut um, a couple of times in the second half of the year. Um, I, we, we, we feel even more emboldened uh, in that view uh, than ever. Um, that's it for me. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, Tom, for the insights. Uh, next up is Blake um, to tell us uh, where maybe the Fed might surprise us tomorrow or uh, any other thoughts on the U.S. bond market. Yeah, thanks, Jason. And, and I have to say right up front, I mean, I think, uh, you know, as you were kind of describing the price action, we were almost underselling it to a, to, to a degree. I mean, since the last time we had this call two weeks ago, um, you know, Fed pricing for year-end 2023 is, has been trading in a, a 220 basis point range, which is absolutely mind-melting. Um, you know, we've had the market's focus whipsaw from two weeks ago when they were focused on, you know, some, some still kind of resilient economic data. And, you know, we were starting to hear more chatter around the possibility of returning to basis point hikes 
to the point where we have we we now have you know some of the major uh, banks out there calling for cuts at this meeting and um, you know it, at least a decent contingent kind of seeing a, a likelihood for for a pause at this meeting. So really a, a, a shocking kind of turn of events, um, you know, particularly for something as short as two weeks. Um, this has come both uh, you know this price action has come both via falling terminal pricing. We've seen that move from around 570 level down, all the way down to, to kind of 490. Um, you know, we've seen uh, uh, expectations for the start of the cutting cycle, as you mentioned, pull, pulling forward. You know, that had been in January, uh, around January 2024, two weeks ago. That has pulled all the way into, you know, having the first full cut around July 2023. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think it's important to note that, you know, a lot of this uh, uh, price action, a lot of these issues around the banking sector really only started to heat up after the Fed was entering into the black period, which is important because it's basically left us with, you know, virtually no guidance as to how the Fed is is kind of weighing recent economic data, kind of their base case as it existed two weeks ago, uh, against these kind of potential systemic risks, you know, all of this instability, uncertainty, and, um, you know, the, the, the likely kind of medium to longer term impacts that this banking sector stress is going to have on financial conditions. We, we just really don't know how the Fed is looking at these things. But, um, you know, in, in our view, I, I, I do... Um, see a decent possibility that we basically come out of this Fed meeting uh, with the Fed essentially looking tone deaf to markets. Um, You know, I think with only kind of two weeks, uh, you know, with only two weeks of this, I think it's unlikely the Fed's majorly kind of recalibrated a lot of their models. I think they are going to come out and express confidence that the actions they've taken on the liquidity side have, um, you know, kind of effectively stemmed some of the broader risk uh, around these uh, financial stresses and, um, you know, try to separate out uh, rate policy from, uh, you know, from financial stability and say, you know, look, the toolkit we have for financial stability is these liquidity, uh, you know, liquidity f- facilities and, and actions and rate, uh, you know, the, the, the setting of rate policy is entirely dependent on kind of, you know, the, the, the inflation goal and kind of macroeconomic policy. If they do that, I think that's probably going to come as a disappointment to market, too. I think are hoping for a bit more reaction uh, from the Fed to, to these recent stresses. So um, in that event, I mean, I think we probably see what's been a, a fairly classic reaction to hawkish, uh, you know, hawkish Fed surprises where, um, you know, the front end starts to price the Fed essentially putting on blinders and trying to hike their way through this. Uh, but at the same time, seeing, um, you know, some of those, those probabilities of cuts later on um, exaggerate. Um, and I also think that, you know, given how many kind of stop outs and how much pain there's been in the, the kind of fast money sector over the last two weeks, um, you know, I think some of the people who would normally be playing around in some of this front end Fed pricing are on the sidelines. And, and what that means is that, you know, if we do get this kind of hawkish interpretation, a broader kind of risk off move could, um, you know, could be the bigger driver of rates. And, and any kind of duration bid on that risk off flow. Uh, you know, could serve to push some of that cut pricing below levels that even we, you know, as Tom mentioned, we, we've long expected cuts, um, but, you know, push it to levels that even we see is, is probably somewhat extreme. It's just very difficult to position for those views now because you're basically taking an implicit bet that, you know, there's not another shoe to drop in the banking sector, that things are going to uh, essentially calm down and, and, and that, um, you know, that, that the cut pricing that we've seen enter into 2023 is, is, is going to reverse. Um, so I will pause there and pass it along. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, Blake. Uh, now over to uh, Peter to weigh in on the situation in uh, Europe. Yeah, good morning uh, to everyone in North America. Good afternoon to everyone in Europe. Um, so what I thought I'd do was, first of all, I'll try to look back a little bit because we obviously had a bit of a um, sneak preview how central banks might react last week when we, uh, when we had the ECB meeting. 
take a look forward to the Bank of England meeting and then uh, make a more general comment uh, about my view on the situation over here. So first of all, when you look back, um, what did the ECB do? Um, well, they did a high rate, a 50 basis point, actually, as they had indicated previously that they would. Um, but they also refrained from giving any further strong guidance going forward. Um, and I think how we can interpret that is they look at the inflation-fighting part of their mandate, saying, well, the situation has not sufficiently changed. We need to deliver that, um, and they have. But we don't really know how the situation will continue in the future. We feel less confident about giving strong guidance as we did before. So they basically left all options on the table. They could hike further, they could stop hiking, and they could do something entirely different. What they've also done, however, is A, they stress that the European banking system as a whole is significantly more stable, um, and particularly as the Credit Suisse situation was unfolding um, and as the U.S. situation was unfolding, they stressed that they see that or that they think there's a significant difference to the European system, uh, which is well capitalized, um, much less leverage, um, and quite typically quite well um, oversight. Now, what they've done, though, is that if push comes to shove, we have significant tools, a significant amount of tools at our disposal to address the situation, reading um, liquidity injections, Teltro, these type of things. And so far, that seems to have worked, um, and particularly as Nicola mentioned earlier, since the clarification that the, credit, uh, that, that the capital stack, um, the, the margin order would be upheld in Europe, the market has calmed down. So is that a blueprint uh, for particularly the Bank of England? We think it could be. Um, I mean, again, um, we don't have the same kind of situation um, in the UK banking system either. And the Bank of England has been less committing to um, forthcoming action um, compared to the ECB anyway. So we expect actually that they will hike 25 basis points, um, mainly justifying that with the inflation fight, and will then continue to keep all options open. We actually think that because the rates are already higher and the economy is probably a bit poorer, um, sorry, excuse me, is performing a bit poorer um, than, um, the, uh, than, say, the U.S. economy, and they probably um, already will um, bring their rate hiking to a close. Not entirely clear, of course, and the market has a small probability of them going further, um, but uh, we think that 425 is where they're going to stop. Just as Blake was saying for the U.S., the market's already pricing cuts. It's pricing cuts in both markets, and we think that's very unlikely to be delivered. So last but not least, what's my take on the entire situation? Well, clearly, as Nicola was saying, um, the um, Credit Suisse situation has been fairly unique. Um, could there be any other unknown unknowns in the European markets? Of course. But also keep in mind in Europe and the continent of Europe in particular, rates are significantly lower compared to where they are in the US particular, particularly because the ECB started later. So that the, the same, while there is a feed through obviously of the higher rates, is not to the same degree. Um, and secondly, liquidity provisions are significantly, um, are significantly higher at this stage because no no real purposeful QT has yet started. So I actually think that here in Europe there's quite a few opportunities um, after the market dislocations that we've seen. Um, just to name a few, um, I think, for instance, if you just look at how, be that sovereign credit, be that um, um, sub-sovereign credit, be that credit in general has performed, there's probably opportunities here against the Gavi market. Um, I also think that there are, in the implied rate path, 
that there are opportunities now. When you look, for instance, where the market is pricing ECB rates by December 23, it's not much higher than where it is now after pricing um, a hike to, to 3.25 and then implying cuts again. I think there's a good opportunity here to pay or to sell your rival futures, for instance, and that's probably going to drag the outright level along. So I think the market's probably rallied a bit too much over here, and I'll probably be leaning towards a slight short position. And also, if you're so inclined, um, volatility, implied volatility in the rate market has shot up, implied three-month, 10-year, three-month, two-year um, implied um, swaption walls have uh, back at the peak um, where we've seen them in 2022. And I think there's good opportunities there uh, where you could start being um, short volatility again. And with that, I'll leave it and hand it back to Jason. Okay, thanks a lot, Peter. Uh, last but not least, uh, Adam Cole on the uh, currency market where the dollar has been uh, unusually stable during this period of turmoil. Absolutely. Thank, thanks, Jason. So, um, indeed, for all of the uh, volatility and uh, moves in, in other markets, to look at the uh, FX market through the dollar index, you'd think it all completely passed us by. Um, compared to the uh, just before the uh, SVB event, um, dollar index is down about 1% or so, and it's traded up a percent and down a percent in a, in a very tight range. Um, it's not the case, I think, however, that this has passed us by, but what we have seen is something of a regime shift in the way FX trades. From um, prior to the SVB event, um, and we've talked many times about this before, bonds and equity markets uh, moving in uh, the same direction typically for the last year or so. What this has done is take us right back into the world that existed before that period that um, people call ro-ro, risk on, risk off. Um, we call it the world of one trade, but where bonds and equities move in opposite directions and FX trades in line with currencies, statuses, risks, proxies, or safe havens. And the dollar is kind of caught in the middle in that kind of environment. Dollar doesn't comfortably fit into the risky bucket or the safe bucket. And what we tend to see and what we have seen over this period is therefore FX markets that are dominated by movements in the safe currencies, Swiss franc and the yen, and the risky currencies at the other extreme, the commodity currencies and the scandies primarily. Um, and that's really what's, uh, what's dominated. Um, going forwards, I, I think the, the risk is that we stay in this kind of environment while the uncertainty overhangs and that um, the dollar, again, is trapped in the middle. And we are in markets that are a lot less what I would call dollar directional than they have been for the last year and uh, play out more through this risk-on, risk-off theme. Um, as far as generating ideas is concerned, I think we, we have to go back to um, uh, applying a discipline that we applied prior to the last year or so of price action, which is being very um, uh, focused on relative value. So looking where possible to express macro ideas in currency pairs that are uh, not correlated or lightly correlated to swings in broad risk appetite. Um, so as to take a, a cleaner view on macro themes. And that, that's indeed exactly what we're doing in terms of our short-term idea generation. Ultimately, if asset markets do stabilize, we can go back to thinking about um, dislocation in terms of monetary policy 
and relative rate movements, relative physical positions, etc. But for at least for the near term, I think the discipline is um, is being aware of those asset correlations that are freshly re-emerging and, um, and setting our trades up to, um, to take account of that. Um, finally, I would just say, again, on this context of shifts in dollar directionality and diminishing dollar directionality, um, we wrote about this in the latest edition of our weekly total FX, looking at ways you can express that shift in dollar directionality through vol or implied correlation in options markets. And with that, back to Jason. Okay, so thank you for joining this edition of Macro Minutes. Uh, the narrative in financial markets has pivoted from one extreme, uh, that everything is okay and significantly more hikes are in the pipeline, uh, to the other extreme, that rate cuts are forthcoming soon. And in reality, the answer probably lies somewhere in the middle. So uh, stay tuned to our publications or reach out to us directly in the interim for additional insights on what we're thinking. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.